I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 18, we read Natural Right and History by Leo Strauss from 1950. Leo Strauss was born in 1899 in Germany, where his father sold farm equipment. He was raised in an observant Jewish home and graduated from high school in 1917. During that time, he became exposed to the works of neo-Kantian philosopher Hermann Cohen. He served in the German army in World War I. In 1921, at the age of 22, he received his PhD from the University of Hamburg. The following year, he spent a term at the University of Freiburg, where he attended classes by Edmund Husserl and Husserl's assistant, Martin Heidegger. Between 25 and 28, he wrote his first book called Spinoza's Critique of Religion. In 1932, Strauss studied in Paris on a Rockefeller Fellowship. While there, he married the widowed Miriam Bernson, whose son he later adopted. Next year, Strauss and his family moved to England, again on the Rockefeller Fellowship. He held a research fellowship at Cambridge University. In 1937, he moved to the United States to become a research fellow at Columbia University. And for the next 11 years, Strauss was a member of the graduate faculty of the New School for Social Research. He became an American citizen in 1944. Paul Krauss had married Strauss's sister, Bettina, and Strauss adopted their only child, a daughter, when both the girl's parents died in Egypt. In 1949, he joined the University of Chicago as a professor in the Department of Political Science. And then and stayed there until 1968 when he moved to Claremont's Men's College for a year and a half and then to... St. John's College in Annapolis, where he served as Scott Buchanan Distinguished Scholar in Residence until his death in 1973. Strauss is credited with the revival of classical fl- political philosophy in college curriculums at a time when such studies were overshadowed by quantitative and behavioral political scientists. Strauss's work became influential with a large number of conservative political thinkers, especially in neoconservative circles. So Strauss is writing in the wake of World War II with this book and the early dawning of the Cold War. And along with every other thinker of the time, he's really trying to make sense of what had just happened in World War II and 20th century totalitarianism. That's communism and Nazism, fascism. He sees these as radical forms of a much deeper problem with modernity. Now he spends much of his, much of this book drawing connections and developing insights regarding from philosophers throughout history. And I found that fascinating, but for our purposes on this podcast, I think, I think we simply just need to understand what he's trying to achieve. And it's a similar project as Richard Weaver from our episode three in that Strauss sees a crisis of basically a crisis of truth and what he calls a lowering of the sights of political life. And as Kyle mentioned in the biography, what he's really meaning by that is, it's a shift from the classical ancient focus that is, you know, Plato and Aristotle's focus on understanding the metaphysics, uh, metaphysical value systems. And if you remember from our episode three, metaphysics meaning like 
there's a some sort of underlying superstructure of value and meaning in the universe. And sometimes that's God and sometimes that's something else. And that's something else in this case is that he's looking at is natural right. And so he says, you know, absent a metaphysical value system, we're lowering our political sites, lowering our sights on political life from something grander to sort of the more mundane facts and causes that is sort of social science. Mm. And he sees that crisis sort of occurring in the academy and particularly among and among philosophers and philosophy. And this was in 1950 where there already was a strong trend in Europe in the wake of World War One and then World War Two to sort of start moving away from belief in God in particular and and belief in these sort of higher metaphysical values or, or any sort of value system that that could exist, you know, independent of human thought and instead moving more towards what he's going to, what he takes up is these, this idea of historicism, which we'll talk about, I think in just a second. And, and then what he calls social science is distinction between facts and values that basically science and human thought really can't say anything about any higher value or, you know, metaphysical superstructure of the, of the universe. Instead, all we can talk about really is different cultures. And this goes back to our conversation about relativism in our, in our Weaver episode of uh, episode three. So, but before, before we start talking about that, let's give a sense of what he means by natural right. And so he says, all natural beings have a natural end a natural destiny, which determines what kind of operation is good for them. So in ancient philosophy, Aristotle, Plato, they were, they focused their attention on human excellence and how to achieve human excellence. And what they would say is if you're living according to nature, that you're, you're, you are rising to the highest level of excellence that you can. And this is kind of what we're getting at with, with natural right all beings have, you know, this destiny and it's a, has a teleological view of the universe. What we mean by that is there is a, a, there is a purpose that we're aiming towards and that we're moving towards. Teleological means that there is something out there that, that gives us direction. And this we contrast with sort of the contemporary academy, and especially now. I mean, he's right in 1950, but here in 2019, it's it's, you know, risen to the nth degree. That is, you know, no belief in God, no belief in natural rights, no, no belief in any metaphysical value system at all. Instead, everything is relative to your culture, to your hit, to your time uh, in history. Why, why does that become a problem? Well, he says, if we can only become wise in all matters of secondary importance, we have to be resigned to utter ignorance in the most important respects. And we basically can't make any value judgments when it comes to even obvious things like uh, Soviet gulags or Nazi uh, Holocaust. Because if we're saying that, and, you know, if we're just, it, everything is just uh, a function of your time. And we'll talk more about this in historicism. Well, then that's a major problem and a major crisis of, being able to make any any judgment calls at all. Yeah, it's um it's something that I, I don't think comes up in everyday political conversations. Mostly we're we are focused on those secondary things. But where you begin 
you know, this, this starting point, the first things, which as he described, that's what philosophy is meant to be about discovering the first things where, where ideas come from, where right and wrong come from. And if you don't, if you don't have that, and I think this is something that we, we see throughout other conservative philosophies without maybe not as explicitly as here in Strauss or, or as he said in Weaver's work, but that basis that there is right and there is wrong is something that, that separates us from the totalitarian ideologies. And it, and it has practical effects because when you believe in those totalitarian ideologies that are just about what we can accomplish, not whether it's right, not whether the means are just, it always seems to end a certain way. And, uh, that's, yeah, like you said, gulags, concentration camps, labor camps, you know, uh, death. A focus on right and wrong and that there is this external place where right and wrong come from, not just whatever we think at the time, whatever we can get 50% of the people to vote for, but uh, something something beyond that is such an important part of polit- political philosophy that I think it um, doesn't always get attention in the popular discourse, but it, it really does matter. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just to even clarify a little more when it comes to natural right, I think we can think of it in terms of natural rights, plural, in ter- you know, sort of the, these, we hold these truths self-evident that all men are created equal, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, life, liberty, property. I think he means that's, he's trying to capture that meaning of natural right, but I think he's also meaning natural right as in what you just described, Kyle, as in right versus wrong. So, you know, something is right because nature would have it be so that, that there actually is a, a true a truth to right versus mm-hmm. wrong, correct versus incorrect. He says, social science rejects natural right on two bases. Number one is based on historicism. And number two is based on the distinction between facts and values. And so in chapter one, he dives into the first, which is the critique from history. It says, uh, the natural right claims to be a right that is discernible by human reason and universally acknowledged the history shows a variety of notions of right and justice. The historicist will argue that all human thought is dependent on unique historical contexts and bound to perish with the situation as it is preceded by a new historical context. Right and justice are arbitrary social conventions with no basis in nature. Let's, let's contemplate the meaning or the implications there. If right and justice are arbitrary, social conventions like socially constructed we just humans just make it up on our own with no basis in nature then how in the world can we step back and make judgments and say the holocaust was wrong or that any any horrendous act by human beings has how how can we judge right or wrong for strauss he maybe maybe uh, this you know the this historicist these moral relativists would say wow we wouldn't go that you know the that's not what it means, but he's like, well, that's where your logic leads. I mean, that's that's the logical extension of of what you're trying to say here, and that's a huge problem for for humanity. Yeah, and it's the uh, the relativists always come off sounding like the uh, like the permissive, friendly philosophers. You know, what's right for you? What's right for me? Who can say? But it it does lead, as Strauss would point out, to a, a pretty grotesque result that. that the absence of judgment isn't really friendly or permissive or, 
or helpful to humanity. It's really bad because look at the stuff we do to each other. And, you know, as you said, he's coming out of this era where humans had done some pretty horrible things to each other on a mass scale. So I think it was a lot of philosophers in the 40s and 50s were focusing on this. And they were really, really questioning the idea of, you know, is humanity basically good? Is there a good? Is there a, is there a reason? Is there something we can do or think about that would prevent this, you know, or is this really just man's nature? So, you know, endless horror and, you know, brutality. It's, it's an important question now, but you could also see definitely how it was a very recent and important question in his day. Yeah, very pressing question in 1950 when this was published. And, you know, he's not the, obviously the only one, as I mentioned before, like so much of continental philosophy was, was focused on this exact question of how could humans behave this way? You know, how could we do this to each other and are we doomed? Okay, we've gotten through this episode, but are we doomed to repeat this to a point where we, you know, slaughter one another? And, and now we're entering into, this is 1950, entering into the, nuclear age when by the 1970s you know thousands of nukes pointed at them and they have thousands of nukes pointed at us and facing a complete annihilation of the human race and meanwhile in at the in the academy we're we're saying that you know everything's just as good as another and we're trying to embrace this multiculturalism and the anthropologist will say like well no the only reason that you think that you know blowing a guy up with nukes an entire civilization is because because of your time in history and had you been born at another time it would have seemed perfectly natural <laughs> yeah and, that's, and he's like wait wait no yeah that's but that that is where that leads and it's it, i think it also comes to this idea of what do you think a human being is like are we capable of understanding great things or are we just hairless apes you know with mm-hmm. pretensions of greatness and that's, I think, the relativist view, you know, that's sort of like, well, you're just affected by your environment, you know, different than, you know, the way a dog is trained by, you know, how he has to live in the household he lives in, you know, human, you know, do we really, when you talk about eternal truths, are they really true or are they just your feelings dressed up as truths? And that's a critique mm-hmm. you still hear from the left today about, about, you know, whether you know, there are people who don't believe in natural rights or people who don't believe in absolutes. Yeah, that, I mean that's that's just a really important thing about the nat- the nature of the human mind itself. You know, even before you get into the political implications, are we mm-hmm. are we capable of understanding great things? And Strauss certainly mm-hmm. believes we are. Yeah, and he says, uh, in pushing back against the historicists, he says history seems rather to prove that all human thought is concerned with the same fundamental themes and problems. There exists an unchanging framework. And he's so, and so if the fundamental problems persist in all historical change, he says human thought can, can't transcend its historical limitations to grasp something eternal. So to your point, like he says, can, can we reach out and grasp something bigger? And he says, definitely. And just pay attention to the fact that all humans are, have a preoccupation with the, with the same questions of, you know, why am I here and what am I doing? And, and why is there something rather than nothing? And, you know, how, how do I live a good life? And how do I have find purpose? How do I find meaning? These are all questions that regardless of historical age, you know, or, or culture, you know, you're compelled to sort of look to the stars and ask those questions. And, 
even if you don't don't believe in God and Strauss, it's a real question of whether he did or didn't. As you said, he grew up in a in an Orthodox Jewish home, and in his other writings, he spends a lot of time writing about Judaism and this distinction that he he draws between uh, Athens and Jerusalem, which is basically like you know logic and enlightenment versus uh, revelation. And and he'll he argues strongly that you can't disprove uh, revelation or the existence of God. But he'll say, you know, I think in this book is basically like, but even if you do, even if you do make that, make that decision and, and it's not clear what, where he comes down, actually, that there's still something in the universe that's, there is a, a right and a, versus a wrong. And there is, there's something in nature. There's something in the universe that's, that's an unchanging framework, he says, that we can reach out and grasp. And we see that again through each historical age, people are asking the same questions and wondering the same things and, and reaching out. So. That's, um, I, I thought that really got to something we discussed all of last season too, is that if there is this something outside of us that ordains right and wrong, what is it if it can't be God? Mm -hmm. And I think Strauss really uh, gives the best answer I've seen yet for that, and that, that natural right and nature can exist whether you believe in God or not. And that's, mm. That's important because if otherwise we, if that's not, if there is nothing else, then we have a conservatism that's really only available to theists, which is not everyone. And right. um, if we want to really have a, a universal philosophy and not just the extension of certain religions in the political sphere, there has to be that other right and wrong. And there has to be a way of accessing these fundamental principles that maybe doesn't necessarily involve membership in a certain church or, or, or other faith. Mm -hmm. Strauss really does a good job of demonstrating how that's possible. Uh, I think that, that was one of the most valuable lessons of these essays for me. Yeah, I completely agree. And so, so let's enumerate a few of these in his, in a later chapter he goes through, and again, he's uh, very interested in ancient philosophy and Plato and Aristotle and, so he's a he'll enumerate some of these natural rights. He says love, affection, friendship, pity, concern for your own good, concern for the good of loved ones. Like this is something that all humans have. So there's there is something underlying our behavior and our thought and and you know even if you believe that there is no higher power or a higher meaning, but that it, but that we're completely materially driven. That is, you know, evolution is we're biological machines that biology is still pushing us to love people and consider, you know, have concern for our own good. And, and if you are not concerned for loved ones, then you're basically a sociopath and we can identify the problems in your, in your biology. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. There's medicines for that, right? <laughs> because you right. say, well, there's something, something's not clicking because if you are a human, then you do care about what happens to your, you know, four-year-old daughter. Yeah. And, and people who, people who don't are seen as wrong, all over the world, not just in our Western right. culture or and in all Christian cultures tradition. and in all times. Yes. Because, yeah. you know, one of the critiques of natural rights, well, people have different ideas of natural rights. What's, what's, you know, but yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of overlap among cultures that we normally would look at and say, well, that's very different. You know, mm -hmm. you know some undiscovered tribe in the Amazon probably has some considerable overlap with our American culture. You know, you can't just kill each other. That seems to be a pretty universal one. And yeah, mm -hmm. concern for your fellow man, you know, pity for people who are suffering that 
that's uh, everywhere you go that exists, and that's part of our universal humanity. Yeah, and and human conscience too. I've always found to be such a fascinating phenomenon because, okay, so these relativists will say, well, you only feel bad, you know, your conscience only pricks because you've been taught that lying is wrong, and maybe to some extent that there could be some truth to that. I'm not saying there's, but it's not like my parents spent time like telling me that that betraying a friend, you know, by, you know, like kissing his girlfriend or something like that, that 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 was somehow they didn't they didn't talk about that being wrong you just i just knew that it was you know yeah and you, you just kind of feel it inside that's that's true i mean there's that universal reaction of uh, certain behaviors where it for most people the mind just recoils there's something there and it's the same like all these po- relativist political philosophers would say that we're perfectly capable of discovering natural truths about science you know we we've figured out physics we've Figured out astronomy, a lot of it, you know, there's still things we are working on, but, you know, we, we've made tremendous strides in those areas. And the, you know, these things are well beyond what the the caveman brain understood. Mm -hmm. When it comes to political philosophy, I guess it's just that they don't believe that that is real in the way that gravity is real or the speed of light is real. Certainly we're, we're capable. Everyone would recognize of understanding these great and universal truths of science, you know, so why, why wouldn't we be capable of understanding the same thing in philosophy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on uh, the subject of science, we might as well jump to his, his, the second great critique that he's going to push back on. And that is the distinction between facts and values in, in chapter two, he goes on at length about Max Weber, who was, you know, miss uh, the kind of a godfather of social science, but the, the, really what he focuses on is uh, here's a Weber quote, basically, social science can answer questions of facts and their causes. It is not competent to answer questions of value. So this is the is-ought distinction, which is to say you can't get an ought from an is. So, you know, I I own a smartphone. That fact cannot tell me that I should own a, a smartphone or that I shouldn't. You know, so then is is just the fact of the matter, you know, I drive a car. So that's the is. And the ought might be, well, I should drive it safely, but that's a should and that's an ought. Mm -hmm. And in social science and just science across the board, you can't derive an ought from an is. It's just that there is a fact that's there. And so how does it apply here? Well, it's like some humans believe in God, but we can't derive from that, that they ought to believe in God. All we can say is that they do. You know, X caused Y. That's what science seeks to discover, but they can't tell you exactly whether you ought to. There's no, he says, Weber says, there's no genuine knowledge of the ought or true value system. And so in 1950, that's when social science was really trying, getting off the ground and being, being created, we're moving away from philosophy, basically, and capturing, encompassing all aspects of science and and theology moving towards no this is a this is a new this this is a new discipline a focus of study is social science political science and so what's social science political science sociology psychology and basically what's what the the in the academy they're arguing is like there's you can't derive any value system from all of these facts he says no possible social or cultural order which can said 
which can be said to be right the right order there's ultimate values cannot be resolved through uh, human thinking human reason and through science it's uh i think you see this sometimes in uh political discourse i mean if we want to relate it to certain trends going on in the modern politics the idea that well we all have something so there must be a right to it you know like every time there's an advance in the wealth of, of a civilization the people on the left will say well there's a right to that thing now there's a there's a right to healthcare because everyone should have it because i have it and it's pretty great I don't know, that's what I was thinking of when I read this, and that might not, maybe I'm interpreting it wrong, I don't know, but it seemed like that was sort of the, you're taking, they're taking a weird leap from uh, stuff we have, stuff that we like, to stuff that we deserve. Yeah, deserve and should, should have or should do. And as he'll say, Weber's thesis leads to nihilism or the view that every preference, however evil, base, or insane, must be judged as equally legitimate as any other preference. So the upsh- the upshot of this problem, the problem with uh, Izzat distinction is the same as historicism, which is like, well, now we can't say anything about anything. Mm-hmm. We can't make any value judgments at all. So we can't even say that rape is wrong. All we can say is that's a fact that exists in the world. And we can't derive from that whether it's right or wrong. We can just say that it is. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, and I think it's Strauss's idea that um, we, I mean, we, like we were talking about before, you see if a certain idea applies across all the different cultures, I mean, there is something to be derived from that. There is some some learning that can be applied to that. So, well, that, that must mean something. There's something greater that that's reaching toward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, there's no value judgments. He says there's no ability to judge cruelty or concentration camps. You know, mm-hmm. true freedom requires ends anchored in ultimate values. He says so. Both of these, you know, the upshot of both of these, both the historicism and the critique of social science, is basically the same. Uh, it leaves us uh, adrift in uh, in a meaningless and cruel universe, and we can never step back and make obvious value judgments about uh, about right and wrong. Yeah, and you see this in the way political scientists just talk about people too. They they act like they're looking at a like primitive animals in a cage, you know. It's like there's never any application of right and wrong. It's always just this really distant anthropology from this this view from the ivory tower. Mhm. You know, just look even at, of our looking at your own civilization, which you know, I mean, sometimes people used to do this at civilizations they deemed more primitive. But I think to social scientists, we're all primitives, um, and right, right, they right, look right. at us that way, and and they won't say right or wrong any more than they'll say that you know some tribal custom that we that a lot of people would think is primitive or obscure is right or wrong. You know, the same way they won't say that such and such a political belief is right or wrong. It's just, you know, the, the factor of these environmental causes and, you know, people are seduced by this. And yeah, the absence of right and wrong in any of that political thinking is it's a major gap in just the understanding of what we're even about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and he's trying to, and Strauss is really trying to save us from the depths of what he, he basically says that 
this line of thinking leads in one direction. That is to nihilism. Nihilism being like basically like, well, there's no meaning. Then what difference does anything make? You know, if if I can't make a judgment on any any uh, aspect, or there's no there's no tiering of values, well, then what difference does it make what anyone does ever? And uh, it leads to you know sort of that uh, existential response. Dostoevsky saying, if there is no God, then everything's permitted. Well, if there is no God and there is no natural, you know, universal right versus wrong, well, then everything is permitted. And is that the, is that the type of world that we want to live in? <laughs> yeah. And that's it. I think that was the reaction of a lot of people after the horrors of the two world wars and you get, you know, Sartre and Camus and, and that line of thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Strauss, you could see why he wanted to push back at that because you see where it goes. You know, it just leads to more of the same. You know, that kind of thinking isn't going to stop the horrors of the world wars and the Holocaust and the and the gulags. It's it's only going to give people more license to recreate it in their own countries or in their own ways. It, it's kind of a, that whole existential response. It just seems really strange to me as a response to human the, the manifestation of evil that that we saw in the forties and the thirties. Mm-hmm. It's it, normally you see something like that. So, well, that's gotta be wrong. And instead people were saying, well, who, who even knows? Like, what does it even mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's like, they're just exhausted. You know, mm-hmm. I can understand that. I mean, it's, you see a lot of horrible things. It's sometimes maybe your brain shuts down, but Strauss uh, gives a, a fairly philosophically rigid way of pushing back against that, and, you know, rediscovering, the ideals that that made philosophy to begin with. Yeah, and so what's the hook for our podcast here? Well, like this is something that conservatism is an attempt to conserve, and what is it trying to conserve? In this case, it's just trying to conserve. You know what you and I've been talking about. Like how, how do we how do we reclaim you know right versus wrong, and how how do we how do we reclaim sort of a a belief in some sort of you know metaphysical truth of superstructure that even if you don't believe in God, at least there's, there's something that exists that, that we can turn to and say, well, there is right versus wrong. And we do have natural uh, enumerated rights. We do have a right to, to self-actualization and, and I'm no better or worse than, than you. And we deserve uh, equal treatment under the law and an ability to have a family and a life and liberty you know, sometimes this gets a little bit deep mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's philosophy and I, I really enjoy it, but I know some people don't necessarily, but the, the, I think the takeaway for listeners is basically like cons- conservatism is more than just conserving freedom and liberty, which I th- think you and I would put on a pedestal as some of the most important. It's also trying to conserve. It's really on the left that this, all of this negative action is occurring. And that's not to say that, you know, all Democrats would believe that there's there's no true morality out there that where, you know, or value system where you could judge the difference between the Holocaust and not. Now, I, I actually don't think that there's very many Democrats who would think no. that, but, but the, the, the trend in the Academy, which is basically all a bunch of leftists, mostly Marxists is uh, moving in this direction that he fears of saying, using historicism and, and social science to prove that like, well, there's nothing there. Yeah. And that, 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 that's not that's a that's a bigger problem than you might think at first you know at first blush because even if most people aren't listening to philosophical lectures and 
you know, defining their lives based on that. These ideas trickled down to everybody else. They, you know, the ideas that come out of the academy, even when they're first scorned or laughed at by the masses, eventually they become like socialism itself. It, you know, it does infect the larger culture. Yeah, it trickles down. Relativism probably would have seemed a little nuts a few centuries ago. And now there's a lot of people who will say things that are relativist or say, you know, who am I to judge? Each one is the same. You know, each value system is the same. You know, that, and that's, uh, you know, it's it's sort of an abdication of of your, of reason and that, you know, an abdication of judgment. And it, it is something that originally I think came from rather esoteric discussions, but it becomes real and it it becomes important. So that's, I mean, that I think is like you say that that that's, although this is not the sort of thing you're going to see discussed in a presidential debate, it's, uh, (laughs) it's, it's important to our politics and it's important to defining what, what are we here for? What are we trying to achieve with all of this? What, you know, what is the point of democracy? It, it is important and it, and it informs a lot in the way we think about other things. Yeah, and to push back, you have to basically push back on that same intellectual level. So it's sort of like, thank goodness for men like Strauss and Weaver who, you know, it might be a little, you know, esoteric, they're writing and difficult to dance, but, you know, they're pushing back on terms that these folks in the academy would understand, like other, you know, leftist philosophers, which is basically all philosophers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're fighting back on their own turf so maybe we've we've covered a lot of what uh what the book uh dives into our listeners you know probably have heard of leo strauss in the context of neoconservatism and the iraq war you know jump in on this i don't see it this isn't the only book that i've read i mean i've read quite a bit of strauss i don't see any connection whatsoever (laughs) myself to the iraq war he uh he's a guy who does not write about foreign policy at all and basically doesn't write about policy at all. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a philosophical thinker. He's engaged in these types of conversations that, that you and I have had today. I mean, did you see it at all in the, in the book? No. And I was looking for it too, because I had not read Strauss before I'd heard, heard his name in a lot of conversations, but I, I had not. And, and, and I, I think you enjoy philosophy more than I do. So I was, you know, I was struggling a little more with this, but it, the idea that this leads to any sort of foreign policy, neoconservative or otherwise, I don't see it. And I guess, I mean, maybe certain neoconservatives liked Strauss. I mean, because that does fit into a conservative, his, his ideas fit into a conservative worldview, but the idea that they would lead to this war or that, I mean, you, you don't need to be a moral absolutist to get into a war. Yeah, exactly. People have been doing that forever. You can be certainly a relativist and want to go fight a different country or defend a certain national interest, you know, or conquer something or whatever your, your impulses are. So, yeah, I, I, um, I feel like this is maybe something that some political journalists latch onto and it gets repeated, but I honestly, and I invite any of our readers to, to look at Strauss if you're so inclined and, and this book or others, I, I see really no connection with the, anything with the Bush doctrine or the war on terror or the invasion of Iraq. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it is a, probably a function of lazy journalists who see, you know, 
Oh, Paul Wolfowitz, he was a student of Strauss. He was so, and you know, Richard Pearl was, I mean, so you had all these, and you had all these uh, Bush administration folks who were involved in, in the Iraq war who may or may not had a tenuous relationship with Strauss. And if I'm just being candid, I, I think part of it too is the fact that a number of these folks are Jewish in the Bush administration who cared about the Iraq war and Strauss himself was, of course. And it's kind of like making that underlying to me almost a conspiracy theory um, connection. Yeah. I was, I was thinking the same and you know, like a lot of conspiracy theories it delves into it or at least look winks at anti-Semitism. But yeah, it's sort of, I I think people come up with conspiracy theories when they can't explain. And I think for a lot of people who were against the Iraq war, it couldn't be that Bush and the people who worked for him believe this was a good idea. There had to be a nefarious secret purpose and you know conspiracy theories explain these things for us and maybe they make us feel better you know and say well it's it's just because they're all under the spell of this political philosopher who died in the 70s but somehow still is exerting his will (laughs) Uh, it's a little crazy um so i want to read this uh excerpt this is this guy mark henry is familiar with strauss and i'm not exactly sure what his history is but he lays out some of these thoughts, and so, so I want to read it. Just I think it's helpful for us. As America prepared for war against Iraq in response to the 9-11 terrorist attacks, a great deal of journalistic commentary, particularly in Europe, centered on the malignant influence of neoconservatism, neoconservatives within the Bush administration and of Straussians within neoconservatism. Numerous Straussians took to print to deny any connection between the neoconservative Bush doctrine and the thought of Leo Strauss, basically what you and I are saying here. And in fact, most of the evidence adduced by the journalists leveling the charge was quite strained. The traces of Straussianism were said to be evident in one, the Bush administration's view that liberal democracy is the final form of political order toward which all societies move in history. So stepping aside for a second, this is what you just said, Kyle, like, well, you don't need Strauss or his thought on on natural right to come to the conclusion that that liberal democracy is the final form, you know, the, is is a political order worth pursuing, right? I mean, uh, so that's number one. Number two, the neoconservatives' approach to politics as a search for the right enemy, and number three, the purported mendacity of the Bush administration concerning weapons of mass destruction. So he says, this is a peculiar bill of indictment. It was Alexander Koyeva, not Leo Strauss, who introduced the end of history thesis. That is that uh, liberal democracy was the end of history. Um, Strauss argued at length against Koyeva, against the idea that the the universal and homogenous state could only be, and he says it could only be a tyranny. That's what Strauss says. And it was Carl Schmitt, not Leo Strauss, who introduced the friend-enemy distinction at the core of of the political Strauss had a critical dialogue with Schmidt as well, and the Platonic teaching concerning the noble lie certainly cannot be understood as providing blanket permission for opportunistic political dissembling. So I know that's a little bit hard to follow, but the bottom line is these the, the three main attacks really made no sense at all. Bush administration view that liberal democracy was the f- final political order. Well, again, e- even, if, even if Strauss thought that, which um, we see that he actually... It's very ambivalent about that question. It was not a motivating factor, and there's really no evidence that it was. Uh, in any event, we're having a little technical difficulty, so Kyle had to cut out. 
my closing thoughts on Strauss is basically, you know, thank goodness we have uh, someone like Strauss who's pushing back at the level of philosophy and at the academy on, on terms that they can understand. And I think that Strauss is a pretty fascinating thinker. For those of you who are interested in philosophy, he's, I recommend, you know, his, his writings. Others, you know, might be a little bit dense, might be a little bit tough, and you do need sort of a background, I think, on uh, philosophy in general and some some thinkers from the past in order to really kind of grasp what he's saying. And, and I'm not even here to say that I understood it inside and out. But next time, we've got a reading by Andrew Sullivan called The Conservative Soul, published in 2007. So hopefully you can join us then. Thanks.